Well, thank you for once again being a part of something that's bigger than all of us, and that is our podcast called Here Voices. This is ICU Talks. We are a mental health speaking ministry. We are here to end the stigma against mental health. Every month, we have an event on the third Tuesday of the month at Mosaic Hope Center. And this month, our 20-minute speaker was a woman named Amy. And Amy came all the way from Florida to stand on our stage and share about her trauma and her healing process. So you're about to have 20 minutes of someone who's just being flat-out honest about where she is and her love and confusion that she has in Jesus. So enjoy. Well, I am so excited to be here. This is surreal. Um, Yeah, it's surreal to be here. I want to start by grounding myself in prayer. So please join me in prayer. Father, we come before you right now and just ask you to be in this space. I know that you are here. I pray that the words of my mouth will glorify you. I pray that people leave and hear exactly what you want them to. Father, thank you that in Jesus our pain is always repurposed for your will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, my earliest memories are of pain and shame. I'm not used to this, sorry. In one moment, the world around me is fragmented and blurry, but my thoughts are very vividly clear. They remain seared into my mind and my body. I am ashamed. I hurt. I know that I am bad. My cheeks burn, my chest is heavy with humiliation and anger. No, not anger. (laughs) It's heavy with humiliation, but not anger. I'm not angry, and I'm not angry because anger is born out of a sense of worth. It's a sense of value and believing that you should be treated in a certain way. But I'm not angry because I don't believe that I'm valuable. I believe that I'm worthless. So I'm ashamed, and I just want to disappear. Like all children, I didn't have the power to remove myself from domestic danger, and I couldn't escape or protect myself, but I instinctively figured out that I could do the next best thing, which was to hide in plain sight. My mind did what my body couldn't do. I learned early in life how to separate myself from painful experiences by retreating within. It was like I constructed this series of rooms in my mind with a variety of hidden mental compartments where I would just stuff feelings and words and images that were too heavy for a little girl to carry. It was like a compulsive hoarder where I would just collect all of these things and then push that door closed and move on to a clean new room. When there was too much stuff, I would just shove it all away. I discovered that my mind could give me in fantasy what I couldn't have in reality and what I longed for, and so I retreated into that often. But these mental gymnastics served me short-term. They did not serve me long-term. In time, I grew so skilled at forgetting that I lost custody of my own memories to the recesses of my mind. I entered adulthood with a limited number of disjointed scenes to attach to the internal world of my childhood. I, knew, I know exactly how I felt growing up. However, I have a hard time recalling all the external events that correlate with those feelings. And that makes telling my story tricky. 
It's also a challenge because I, when I share about my story, there are numerous other people involved in that story that intersect with my life. So for example, I've had two parents, five step-parents, six siblings, I did have one husband, and a whole bunch of extended family members that come from that. And if you spoke to each one of them, you would find that we had shared events that their story would differ significantly from mine. It doesn't necessarily mean that anyone is lying. It means that memory is subjective. And we see the world through our own eyes. And we feel and experience things differently. So my difficulty with obtaining access to my memories and the limited validation I had from the people around me about what I did remember, it kept me silent and it kept me ashamed for many years. I remember going to therapist after therapist and, and so many of them would ask me, well, Amy, why does it matter? Like, why do you need to remember? I mean, I was like obsessed with, I need to remember. And I would hear, um, you know, count yourself blessed that you don't remember. And I wanted to throw things at them because they didn't get it. And they would say, why do you need someone else to validate your memory? You know, your experiences, your pain is valid. But you know what I would tell them is I would say, because I need to know that it's not my fault. I need to know if I'm fundamentally broken and damaged. Is it my fault that I'm in pain? And who do I blame? Do I blame myself? Do I blame God? Do I blame others? Do all of the above? <laughs> How do I heal when I can't process the origin of the wounds? It's like walking around functioning, but you're bleeding out internally. And the doctor can't help you because they don't know. I needed to know if my agony warranted compassion. If I couldn't prove that it wasn't self-inflicted, then I, I couldn't justify its intensity. I've felt emotionally disturbed my entire life. There is no before for me. And I desperately needed to know that that was not my fault. I can tell you that I still hold those questions. I'm one of the people that Kim said, I'm in the middle. <laughs> God has called me to speak in the middle of my journey. But I can say that I no longer hold them with the death grip that I once did. I hold them with open hands because God has brought me to a point in my healing where he's convinced me that my sorrow and my suffering matter to him. He's not judging my worthiness, and I don't have to prove myself to him. He doesn't put a, lot, a timeline on my recovery or on my grief, and I've decided to prioritize his view of me above everyone else's, and that has changed my life. Tonight, I'm going to share more of the core beliefs that I derived from the experiences I had as a child that fueled the inferno of pain that burned inside of me and still smolders even today. But more importantly, I'm going to tell you about God's faithfulness to me. He has stuck with me when I've turned away from him. He's been patient when I've questioned his goodness and raged against him. 
My story is not of a person who's never given up. My story is a person who's given up and fallen time after time, but he's gotten me back up. He has believed in me and valued me when I despaired of hope for myself. He has softened my heart even after I willfully hardened it. God has met me in my brokenness and spoken life to me. I am who I am today because God has and is repurposing my pain. What was intended to destroy me has actually made me very strong. I stand here qualified to speak of the light because I've walked in the darkness and I've found hope in the depths of despair. And I know who met me there. Growing up, I saw myself as nobody's child. Like I didn't belong to anybody. I was surrounded by lots of people, but I was not deeply connected to anyone. I thought I had to make myself valuable to people for them to want me, and I desperately wanted to be wanted. So I watched people, and I tried to figure them out. Men like you to be sweet and pretty. Women like you to be helpful and complimentary, and all adults like children to be happy and obedient. So I was a conscientious student. I was an obedient daughter. I took care of my younger siblings. I was a loyal friend. So I magnified these pleasing parts of myself that were genuinely parts of myself, but I hid the broken, weak, needy parts that longed to be held and nurtured. I believed that I was both too much and not enough. So I was too loud, I was too bossy, I was too prideful. I was too smart, I was too pretty. I talked too much, I thought too much, I felt too much. But I was also not enough. I wasn't humble enough, I wasn't thankful enough, I wasn't obedient enough. I didn't have enough common sense or street smarts. I wasn't thin enough, I wasn't graceful enough. I wasn't careful enough. I felt like I needed to suppress myself and also supplement myself. But I could never just be myself. I felt that I needed to be on guard constantly. I needed to be alert to make sure I was being like the perfect combination of what I was supposed to be. And this striving for perfection was my way of coping in a home that felt very unsafe and unpredictable to me. The abuse I experienced in my mind, I reasoned, okay, so if this is because I'm bad, then I can do something about that. I can stop it. I need to be good. And that's what all abused children do. I embraced a narrative that gave me a sense of control and power. And it gave me this mission. <laughs> to protect myself and others from this badness that I was convinced was inside of me. The emotional landscape of my home felt like this beautiful field with wildflowers growing atop of landmines. Everything looked harmless and normal, even like complimented from the outside of, of how beautiful it was. There was laughter, there was love, there were beautiful times, but that could change in a moment. I knew that every step I took could trigger an explosion. There seemed to be no rhyme or reason to the blast, and the threat of them, even when I'd take that step and there was no explosion, the threat was always there. 
I felt scared, I felt confused. It's like I was trying to be so vigilant and following these rules that I didn't understand. But one thing is very certain, it's that what seemed to be was not as it was. Things were not as they appeared. The words and actions in our home were very different than what the people at church, the people at school saw. Even the words and actions in different rooms of our home were very different than other members of the family witnessed. It is entirely possible to grow up in the same family and have a completely different experience. So I live with these dueling realities. And when words and actions don't match up, you fail to develop a strong sense of discernment and of really being able to tell the truth from lies. And so this started this like lifelong dilemma for me that again, I'm still walking through. What is real? <laughs> what is true? Can I trust my own mind? Do I believe what is being said or what is being done? Who am I? The lies that I came to believe about myself were my earliest teachers. Shame and self-loathing were these familiar guides who helped me to navigate and interpret every situation I was in. They counseled me, they enslaved me, they controlled me for decades. Because it's one thing to fight beliefs about yourself that like you cognitively know are not true, but you like feel them, right? But it's a whole nother level of evil when it never even occurs to you <laughs> to challenge beliefs because you don't know their lies. You believe that they are true. So by the time I reached adolescence, I was an expert at compartmentalizing and dissociating. This served me well when a week before my 13th birthday, my dad died of cancer. In the prior months, I had witnessed the deterioration of the strongest man that I knew. My dad died at home, and I saw things that are still too painful to talk about. After his death, I remember making a very conscious decision, not just to close rooms in my mind, but like an entire book. I opened this new blank book and just completely disconnected myself from the traumatized girl that I had been. I was determined, like hell-bent, on overcoming. By the time I was 17, I was that teenager that was like going to the, you know, self-help workshops with the adults. <laughs> because I was like, I am not carrying this on. I am going to overcome. And then I found Jesus. When I was 17, I um, encountered the cross. Like, I'd known about the cross. I'd grown up in church. But I encountered the cross in a personal way that forever would change the trajectory of my life. When I learned that Jesus had felt forsaken by his father on the cross, I felt connected to him. I knew the pain of abandonment. I knew the longing for protection. Jesus and I had some like major trauma bonding going on there. 
When I learned that my sin was what had actually like caused this disconnection and that Jesus had like willingly chose to go into this for me, it, it broke my heart and I wanted to love him back. And so I believed that my darkness was behind me. I was told that my darkness was behind me. I studied my new church family with the same tenacity that I had studied my family of origin. I learned God's rules and I tried desperately to obey them. But little did I realize that I was trying to control God by my obedience to him. I was defaulting to these same survival skills, right? Of like, I'm going to make you want me <laughs> by being what you want me to be. So Jesus put it this way in John 5. He said, like, you diligently study the scriptures because by them you think that you'll earn eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that speak about me and you refuse to come to me. I wanted to go to Jesus, but I didn't believe Jesus wanted me. And so I looked like a legalistic uh, religious person, but I was motivated by a desperate longing for love and connection. Even so, I'm still sad when I think about the people that I wounded at that time in my life by imposing this harsh view of God on them. During this time and in the next you know, several years going to college, I began struggling emotionally and my mental health began declining. The beginnings of the bipolar diagnosis I would later receive would have been um, clear to a trained eye at that point. But I was in deep denial, so I readily accepted this message that was offered by well-meaning Christians that the symptoms of my mental illness were my fault, that this was a spiritual problem if I just prayed more, had more faith, if I just would rejoice in the Lord always, if I felt less, if I thought less, if I trusted God more, I would be free of pain. So this was something I could work with. <laughs> I was like, I already know that I'm bad, so this gives me like a specific badness to attack. Never mind the fact that I was praying more than my advice offering friends. Never mind the fact that I was genuinely seeking and striving to connect with God, but he remained this elusive God that I longed to please. I figured that I must be doing something wrong, so I was determined I'm going to figure out what I should do so I can change it. In the moments that I acknowledged this to myself, I felt angry. Why was my pain always my fault? Why was God always right and I was always wrong? Why would I go from total fate to the pits of despair overnight? I was doing what I was supposed to do, and I wasn't getting the results that other people seemed to be getting. So I returned to those early beliefs that I was fundamentally bad. I started to wonder if I was eternally condemned as well, like I was that, you know, object of wrath that Paul talks about, and maybe God just made me to destroy me. I believed that I was too bad and beyond hope that even the God who loved the rest of the world could never love me. I'm running short on time, so I'm going to skip ahead. As I moved through my 30s, I tried to confront my pain, but I also cho chose new forms of darkness to numb it. In my self-hatred, I found this strange comfort in verbally and physically abusing myself. 
I used alcohol, prescription drugs, sex to escape the pain. The symptoms of bipolar that were parts of my life became debilitating and routine. By that time, I had been married for 12 years. I was a dead woman walking in my marriage and in my life. This is two years ago now, beginning of 2017. I was only months away from my 40th birthday, and one of the greatest pains in my heart was that my son was an only child. I desperately wanted him to have a sibling. But my marriage was in complete shambles. Miraculously, I got pregnant. And it was clear to me that this baby was divinely conceived, so I was devastated when my fears were quickly realized and I soon miscarried. It was so hard to sing good, good father in my heartache. I began to wrestle with God with the, the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Why have I obeyed you? Why have I done the hard work and still this pain keeps happening? And God began to show me that it was not his will to harm me. It was not his will to cause me to suffer. That Jesus was the ultimate example on the cross of pain being repurposed. And that the very pain that I had experienced and that I had walked through was in the same way as Jesus was able to become the high priest that, that comforts us that he would use the pain that I had experienced to comfort other people. God showed me that he wasn't trying to lord his authority over me, that he cared about me, he cared about my pain. I speak to you today as a woman who knows that God is real. I know that he is good, and I trust him, and that's a miracle. Because I now trust his blessings, but I also trust the wounds that he allows. I believe that he works all of those things together for my good. The verse I chose for my 40th birthday that year remains my verse. And it says, you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. As I shared, I can speak of light today because I have walked through the darkness and been found by the Lord. There still is a lot of pain and a lot of darkness in my life, but I no longer run from it or fear it. I'm learning to walk through it and trust that he will transform it into light, and he always does. Thank you.